Hi, I'm Roger Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. We're speaking two days after the 4th of July, nearly a week since Canada Day. It seemed like a fitting opportunity to discuss the state of Canada-U.S. relations and what a renewed commitment to bilateralism might look like for cross-border trade, labor mobility, and so on. We'll cover these issues as well as the possible need to rethink the Three Amigos view of North American integration as Mexico drifts into illiberalism and away from being a reliable partner. David, thanks as always for joining us. There's been a growing interest in a new Canada-U.S. agenda in light of Chinese antagonism and a sense that the world is bifurcating. But you think the more immediate reason for renewed bilateralism is what's happening in Mexico. Why don't we start there? How has the presidency of Lopez Obrador caused you to increasingly come to the view that Canada and the U.S. may need to cut Mexico out of a deepened North America agenda? Cutting Mexico sounds sounds harsh and, and unwelcoming, and that's, that, that's not the issue. This is about Mexico's choices, not about anybody's choices against them. But Mexico is choosing against its partners. And I think Canadians often don't think about Mexico as, as a near neighbor, but let me just give you one example of how things I've been reporting from Mexico immediately in Canada. Mexico has the potential to be a solar superpower. The Sonoran Desert, vast areas of, of agriculturally useless basically empty land. You can't even graze there, but close to major urban centers like San Diego and Phoenix and even to potentially Los Angeles. And you can imagine arrays and arrays and arrays of um, solar receptors there with fairly short connections to major American cities bringing clean electricity to the United States. Well, you don't have to imagine it because Canadian entrepreneurs have invested vast sums of money making that vision a reality. And this is very specifically a Canadian project. But the Mexican state and its president have said they have some theory about the amount of foreign electricity that they want in their grid. And this Canadian project threatens to be more foreign electric, foreign owned electricity than they want to carry on their state grid. And they're threatening to lock this investment off the grid and make it useless. Now, I, I don't know how that is ultimately going to play out. And Lopez Obrador sometimes does back down at the last minute from some of the more inflammatory things he said. So we can hope that the solar power will become available to for use inside Mexico. But it's just a reminder of Canada is present there. Canada is a near neighbor. Mexico and Canada are now doing almost equal amounts of business, each with the United States. And their, their future matters to Canadians. And if their future is heading in wrong directions, and it's pretty alarming then Canada is going to have to respond. The United States will have to respond too, but Canada has a special pressing need, which we'll talk about in just a minute. 
Yeah, for for listeners and viewers who don't necessarily closely follow Mexico, what should we be looking for in the coming months as guideposts of the state of its democracy and its reliability as a North American partner? Well, Lopez Obrador's term ends in the summer of 2024, and there will be a Mexican. The, the taboo against the president seeking a second term in Mexico is so overwhelming that not even Lopez Obrador will dare violate that taboo. But he's trying to manipulate the election so that he can install a hand chosen successor. And the chaos of the opposition parties means that he has a good shot. So he has a number of people to pick, some of whom are going to be better partners to the rest of North America, some of whom are going to be worse. So we need to look at who he's picking and whether the, those people continue in the radical and anti-constitutional way, and also in a way that is hostile to more open trade. And where this impinges on Canada is this. So in the 1980s, Canada made a big bet on economic integration with the United States and achieved many benefits from that. That happened, the deal was negotiated in the middle of the 1980s and it got, went into effect in the late 1980s. In the early 1990s, Mexico made a turn toward economic openness and democracy, and the Americans invited Mexico to join the U.S.-Canada architecture in, an, in the deal that became known as NAFTA. And Canada was of two minds about this. On the one hand, Canadians knew that a deal with Mexico in it would never be as fully functioning as a deal without Mexico. And you can imagine labor force mobility between the United States and Canada. It's hard, harder to imagine labor force mobility between those three countries because Mexico is poor than the other two suit. So the mobility would all flow one way rather than back and forth as it would between the United States and Canada. So on the other hand, Canada did welcome not being alone in the room with the United States. Um, having a third voice at the table meant that the, the, the conversations could get a little less uncomfortable. And so Canada acceded to the NAFTA framework. And look, it did a lot of good. And Mexico got fewer benefits from NAFTA than they hoped for a lot of reasons, some to do with the rise of China, some to do with other bad choices that Mexico it, itself made, where a lot of people in Mexico saw NAFTA as the end of a process, not the beginning of a process. But here we are, decades later, with Mexico saying, you know what, we're rethinking this whole thing. NAFTA remains very popular in Mexico, nearly two-thirds approve of it. No one wants to see the end of NAFTA in Mexico, not even Lopez Obrador would do that. But the idea of building on it, I mean, and just to give you an idea what the problem is, NAFTA is a pre-internet, pre-internet treaty. So it doesn't contemplate things like, well, what do you do about data streaming? Uh, what do you do about cross-border shipping, you, you know, online shipping, online shopping? Um, how do you make those things work, but while respecting national priorities? The Americans don't want Canadian marijuana flowing into the United States. Canada certainly doesn't want American guns flowing into Canada. Uh, so you have to have some way of checking what's inside the packages that move back and forth across the border. And so how do you make that work more seamlessly than it does now? So th those are two-way priorities. Mexico is not interested in joining a deeper discussion that probably the next Amer Mexican president will be not better and maybe worse than Lopez Obrador. So we need to have a rethink. Is it time to go back to the 80s and think about deepening the bilateral relationship? But before we get to what it might mean for a renewed Canada-US agenda, your observations, David, prompt the question, what, if anything, can Canada and the US do to bolster Mexican civil society and, and democracy? And what would you say to the argument that possibly isolating the country on trade matters risks playing into Obrador's hands? Canadian and especially U.S. governments have limited options in Mexico because 
overt American opposition is obviously a great judo resource to a Mexican president like Lopez. He can just, you know, use the weight of American dislike to empower himself. And he's waiting for that. And he has an especially difficult relationship with Joe Biden. Lopez Obrador, although always described as a man of the left, loved Trump because Trump said to him, look, I've got a very short agenda. You keep out Chinese car parts. You brutally keep migrants off my border. Then you can do what you want to Mexican democracy. I don't care. Uh, the Biden agenda has been a little bit longer, but Biden has made a similar kind of deal. It's got more items on it than the Trump agenda, but Biden has also stood back. And again, there's not a lot that governments can do. As individuals, we can do a lot. And the main thing we can do is care, pay attention. I mean, there is an important liberal movement in Mexico, small L. There's an important civil society movement in Mexico. They often feel very abandoned by their English-speaking neighbors who don't take seriously Mexico as an emerging democracy and don't read about and pay attention to the struggles that Mexicans are fighting in order to protect that democracy. So being uh, being mindful, paying attention in simple things as making sure that Mexican Democrats are invited to conferences and that their, their stories are told and, and heard. But direct government to government options are pretty limited. Now, I'm not proposing that we mex isolate Mexico. The red carpet should always be out the coffee on the stove, ready to pour from the percolator whenever they show up, um, you know, nothing would be better than for Mexico to say, you know what, we've, you know, we've thought it over and we really want to become a full economic partner of North America. We want to resume the work of liberalization. We have a lot to do. Just to bring this into context, if, the Mex if from the time Mexico joined NAFTA in the middle 90s to today, if the Mexican economy had grown at one quarter the rate of the Chinese economy, just a quarter. Mexico today would be as wealthy as Portugal, Spain, Italy, Southern Europe. It, it wouldn't be as rich as California, wouldn't be as rich as Connecticut, wouldn't be as rich as Ontario, but it would be it would be a very comfortable neighbor. And it would have, and this Mexican government would have a lot of resources to police crime, to educate the next generation. It, it, the possibilities would be tremendous. And North America would be a much more, if, if Mexico functioned the way Portugal does, North America would be a very comfortable place for everybody, Mexican, Mexicans above all. But that's not the choice they're making right now. And Canadians and Americans have to adjust to the choices that the Mexican political system is producing, not the choices we wish it would produce. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our free weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive complimentary email newsletter right now at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. That's a good segue to a discussion about Canada-U.S. relations. But before we, we do that, I would just encourage uh, listeners and viewers to check out some of David's first-rate reporting on what's going on in Mexico, including a long-form piece from earlier this year based on extensive travel and, and conversations and interviews in Mexico. If one of the things we can do is pay attention, David is doing yeoman's work on that front. But let's talk about Canada-US, David. What are some of the areas where you think policymakers ought to prioritize? Where is there great need or possible opportunity? 
Well, the Biden administration in its first year has pursued almost no trade opening policies, not with Canada, not with anybody else. And some of their measures have been, frankly, as protectionist as anything that the Trump administration has done. If there is a second Biden administration, I think there's reason to hope that that may change and that there may be some opportunities to do trade opening. Canada is always struggling with the question of why isn't Canadian productivity equal to the United States? And in, in terms of the two countries are so similar in terms of human capital, prevailing educational levels, you know, excellent infrastructure of all kinds. Canada has geographic, Canadian geography is more inconvenient. People, you know, it's basically a country that is spread in one direction. So it's been called a horizontal Chile and with big, but it's not even that because it's big gaps, right? It's a long, it's a long way from Southern Ontario to the next major population centers to the West. So it, that, that's always been the logic of, of, of more open connection is that it's going to be Canada, North America does tend to integrate more naturally up and down and side to side. And especially for the more neglected regions of Canada, like Eastern, Eastern Canada, that if they can be more integrated uh, into the northeastern United States, that will do them good. The same way Quebec can relate to to, to New York State and uh, that the, the, the Mid Atlantic states. Again, it's it's sort of easy. The, the flows go go better that way. And you, you imagine things like you know, when you imagine if you could have better on a cross border online shopping, that fulfillment centers would want to be. It would make a lot of sense to fulfill Toronto orders from the much cheaper real estate of upstate New York. Meanwhile. New Brunswick and Nova Scotia could be back off a of space for the wealthier Boston areas of New England. You could imagine all that working. One of the things we really need to think about is, is easing labor force mobility. And there, Canada runs a more permissive immigration policy than the United States. It's doing a more effective job of attracting global skills. There are American employers who would like to say, okay, if we can't get those people, U.S. visas and U.S. passports, what if they had Canadian visas and Canada does all the work of checking them out, that they're not going to cause problems, they're not going to be a public charge, that they're not going to get involved in any kind of criminality or terrorism. And then once you've got your permanent Canadian visa, it's easy to get your 12-month U.S. visa. And there, there could be labor force mobility that way. And in, in the that there are a lot of a lot of things you can imagine bi bilaterally. And you can certainly imagine, for example, more integrated electrical power grids uh, up and down the corridors. And this is going to become important because as the technology for moving electricity improves, Canada does have untapped hydroelectric resources, the greenest of green powers. They just are a little far away, or they have been until now far away from anywhere where you would use the electricity. I mean, how do you get power from northern Manitoba to anywhere people consume power in large quantities? But as this technology is improved, you can imagine that someday it will make sense to have dams and uh, more dams in northern Manitoba. But when you do that, that, that power is not going to flow to Toronto and Winnipeg can't use it. It's going to have to flow into the American market. So those are the kinds of things we need to be thinking about. And there are many others. But it's going to be a lot easier to do it in a two-way conversation than in a three-way. Yeah, those are those are some big ideas that cover everything from, uh, as you say, productivity to uh, climate change to, to to human capital. One of the challenges, of course, is getting on the agenda in Washington. One gets a sense these days that attention on Canada is, for better or for worse, pretty low. What's your sense, David? And what should Canadian policymakers be doing? to build a Washington coalition in favor of deepened bilateral relations? Well, one of the things that can, uh, Canada is well represented in Washington and, and the 
the key that is turned in the lock, and this is not a new discovery. Canada doesn't get a lot of attention because not because Americans are scornful of Canada, it's just too big and amorphous a category that the people who think about hydroelectricity think about the Canadian, no one thinks about, or very few people think about Canada, US, because when you think about national boundaries, you're thinking in terms of national security, and that relationship is so excellent. And Canada, unfortunately, contributes so little to it that it's mostly a free rider that the, the people think really in terms of two national entities, they don't have a lot of reason to think about Canada. But if you're thinking about climate change, if you're thinking about improving electric power distribution across North America, then those sectors all become very important. And there are people who do think about that. But the main thing we uh, is the Biden administration has to get past an election where like, the basic theory of the Biden administration is he's president, he believes, because he beat Trump in those upper Midwestern states plus Pennsylvania, where there's been a lot of unhappiness with global trade. Biden and the Democrats already dominate the parts of the United States that are happily integrated into the global economy. California, you know, the, the, the Northeast, Northern Virginia, the cities of Texas. I mean, you think of Texas as a red state, but Houston's blue, Dallas is blue, Austin, of course, is super blue, and even Fort Worth is becoming blue. So where people are content with the global economy, Democrats do well. Biden's theory of, of re-election was he, had to, he has to continue to beat Trump or whoever the Republican is in the parts of the United States that are overrepresented in the Electoral College or have a lot of sway in the Electoral College and are not doing well. Once he's passed that vote, then it's time to think about the global economy again. And especially if you want to, as they do, and again, I don't endorse this, but if, if you want, if they, they, if you're thinking about economic decoupling from China, or at least de-risking with China, then obviously uh, you need to find other trading partners who are not China. And Mexico and Canada are the logical ones, and Canada especially is the easiest one. Yeah, we've talked uh, on this podcast and, and on the pages of The Hub about the notion of so-called friendshoring. And as you say, the extent to which that idea is brought into policy expression and ostensibly would involve Canada and the U.S. and a, a deeper bilateral arrangement. As we wrap up, David, I, I want to put an idea to you for reaction. I've long wondered if in light of the asymmetry between the two countries, a better bet for bilateral progress may be at the subnational level. That is to say, Ontario and Quebec, for instance, should foster the institutionalization of a Great Lakes agenda with the eight Great Lakes stakes. They're roughly the same size in terms of population and economic output, and it may therefore make it easier to coordinate on transportation, supply chains, climate change, et cetera. What do you think of that idea? Is it worth pursuing? And can it, to some extent, serve as an alternative to a bilateral agenda between Ottawa and Washington? Well, to, some, to a great extent, it already happens. That certainly in informal ways, and even to some degree, it's formalized. I think with the, with the, with the number of American states, there, there are issues, which is the states themselves find coordinating very difficult. You know, I, I live in the District of Columbia. The, the, my region badly needs another bridge across the Potomac River uh, between Maryland and Virginia. Good luck getting anybody to agree on that. Good luck. People have been talking about it for I, as long as I can remember living in Washington. Yep, everyone agrees. Everyone agrees we need another bridge. The only question is, where does the bridge go? And, and Maryland has one idea, and Virginia has the other, and you need both because you need two sides of the bridge or it doesn't 
No one wants the bridge that stops halfway. And, and it just doesn't happen. And so when you think about how do you coordinate, you know, uh, navigation and water cleanliness of the Great Lakes, uh, I think with, with those kinds of things, it's hard. We also need to remember, by the way, and I, I, Canadians especially need to remember how successfully this relationship has been managed for so long. And one of the great unfairnesses of politics is people stop thinking about problems that have been solved. But I can, I think we can both remember when acid rain was such a huge issue between the two countries. And it, the story was often told as one of Canadian victimhood because Ontario lakes uh, were subject to acid rain from Midwestern factories. What Canadians didn't often like to recall was New England lakes were victimized by acid rain from Canadian factories because the winds blow from, from west to east most of the time in North America. And this is one of the great wins of the Brian Mulroney government, that he worked with his, first Ronald Reagan and then even more effectively with his good friend George H.W. Bush. And, and amendments to the Clean Air Act were negotiated in the United States that meant that acid rain hasn't vanished to nothing. But it's, when was the last time you heard anybody complain much about it? It's, it's a very manageable problem these days and becoming more manageable all the time. And those are the kinds of accomplishments that have happened in the past. Um, there are, I mean, it's, you know, I think that the, the human mind can barely begin to comprehend what the Canada-U.S. relationship is because it's so vast, it's so many issues and sub-issues. You know, it's, it's everything from national security to migratory birds to, you know, yeah, the monarch butterflies, you know, <laughs> how are they doing? That's a bilateral issue. Uh, but, but, but so is making sure that clean energy flows back and forth and in building a true continental power grid. It's, it's, it's vast. It's vast. And it would be great if Mexico were an enthusiastic, cheerful partner. But it looks it, right now it's not. It looks like after 20, it won't be better after the summer of 2024. And so we all need a second bless, a second best plan B. Uh, well, there's a ton of insight there as we celebrate Canada Day in the 4th of July. David, welcome back to Canada and thanks for joining me. I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Frum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation.